everyone. My name is Jim Hankey, and I'm the host of Vinyl Emergency, a podcast where musicians, producers, comedians, and those who dream up, press, release, or collect vinyl records discuss their relationship with the medium today as well as in their formative youth. Artwork that has stood the test of time, neighborhood record stores we remember, the first albums we ever bought, vinyl's warmth and sound, the tangible object of a vinyl record can bring forth so many intangible memories, and that's what we try to capture on the show. Guests have included Roseanne Cash, Ben Montench of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Brian Stack from Conan and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Ted Leo, Lily Hyatt, and Dave Porter of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. We've been known to do an episode or two in front of a live audience as well, and we also talk to everyday record collectors about what drives their passion. We even have episodes dedicated to the processes of mastering for vinyl, properly cleaning your records, the feeling of standing in line for hours on record store day, and much more. Tune into Vinyl Emergency however you get your podcasts. Visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vinyl Emergency, or stop by our website, VinylEmergency.com. This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Manisi. Jay, this week we have, well, it's a it's a round table, but it's only three of us. Uh, sometimes these round tables, like when we did the uh, the Tom Petty in the 90s round table, end up turning into a triangle. They don't quite make it to the full circle that we are uh, planning. But uh, we have an interesting uh, round table this week. We're going to talk about desert rock, Jay, the sound and the scene that we've heard so much about. Excellent. Yeah. And sometimes I think in both those cases, when you have somebody that knows the subject so well, it's kind of nice just to dig deep with that person. So Jason, our guest here is uh, very, very, very well researched on the topic and his movies are really great document of it. So we get pretty deep and I think cover most of the bases. We're talking about Jason Georgiatis. He is the director of the film Desert Age. Jason gives us a really interesting look at uh, the whole desert scene. Uh, we talk about a scene, plus it's it's sort of a scene and it's also a sound. We'll get into all that. You can go to desertagefilm.com to uh, find out where you can watch the film. Uh, you can also buy it on DVD and, and those sorts of things. But uh, let's go to our interview with Jason Georgiatis and his film Desert Age. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us from the other side of uh, the planet on this Sunday morning or afternoon for you. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. This is uh, just really great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Jay and I realized when we were watching a documentary and in doing research for this episode that uh, we were wrong about what we were talking about in the sense that <laughs> we were we were lumping in stoner rock with desert rock and Ah. because we listened to monster magnet and we listened to Caius, and we're like well these aren't far off these are probably sort of the same thing and monster magnet gets lumped in as stoner rock and some other bands that we've listened to and i'm curious uh is is that something that's come up in uh, when you've discussed the the sound of the palm desert scene um that it's described as stoner rock because it seems like the difference is drug intake 
from what we discovered <laughs> that different oh, yeah. drugs are used in different scenes. So is that something that you um, had to deal with when you were getting ready to make uh, the documentary? Good question. Uh, that was a, a hot topic throughout the production because I think people wanted to put the music genre in a box. And I think what we discovered was throughout the documentary that the beautiful thing about the desert is there is no boxes. I'm getting real meta, like yeah. Matrix Neo right now. But, uh, right. you know, there's no... It was such an unusual scene because I think the desert allowed people to do whatever they wanted. So in that sort of artistic freedom, you had different types of bands. And um, I think over the years, people just thought that Caius or Queens of the Stone Age were what, it was like the only band that came out of there and that's sort of the sound. So it was tough. I mean, I definitely didn't make fans because of it, but um, it's, <laughs> it, it was uh, definitely true to what we thought what, what what we discovered about the you know the bands that were there they were all different you know so, right if that so, answers your question well how did so you're I, what, what i'm hearing is that you're implying that the maybe the story changed from what you set out to tell to what you actually ended up telling how did it where did you start and and how did it change oh massive queens of the stone age fan favorite band <laughs> I, I love those guys i mean they're it, it all started from that and uh i i actually saw them on their um, first album reunion tour, which I believe was a year before we started filming. That was like 2013. And it was incredible. They played the whole album from back to front. And I was next to some guy. And uh, right before they started, I'm like, oh, so what What other bands are you into? And he's like, oh, you know, like um, all the other desert rock bands. I'm like, wait, what? What, what does that even mean? So um, <laughs> that kind of led to preliminary ideas about what desert rock was through things like Wikipedia. Right. And then that sort of leads you into areas like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like what, what, how did this band kind of meet this other band and wait, what? Like, so it became this sort of obsession and uh, sort of kind of discovery into both the genre and the people and the places. It's incredible. It's amazing. And then where did the, so, uh, you know, one of the big, uh, I think, uh, learnings for me going into this was just how much drugs played into the culture and the and the bands and the sound. When did that part of the story emerge? Um, uh, well, here's another part that people didn't really like about what we were doing, which was um, the fact that it's supposed to be like stoner rock, implying all those bands like smoke a lot of weed and kind of <laughs> that that's sort of where the genesis was. But we actually figured out that. Uh, a lot of people actually were doing more meth and LSD than uh, the weed. Uh, so that sort of starts to affect, I think, the style of the music. Because people are up all night with these long jams and it kind of never ends. Um, so, yes, it played, a, I, I think, a huge part of it. And um, very edgy. And if you see, like, even the, the Queens of Stone Age sound, it's, like, very edgy and electric and, and um, sharp um, a lot of sections we didn't really go into this in the film but a lot of sections particularly in Caius or Queens of the Stone Age will repeat they have repetitive sections it's not like prog rock right where it just keeps changing 
it, it, it has these very like hypnotic sections in it that I think speak to long nights, drugs, alcohol, party time, filling the time, I think is what these guys were also talking about. Cause the generator parties are out there all night. So these like, I think Brant talks about it, right? Like you couldn't just play like a 10 minute punk rock set cause you'd be done. Right. So they yeah. had to fill that two hour block. And then within that, um, set people were drinking and partying and whatever. So I think it all kind of mashes up. <clears throat> to go back to Tim's original question, so I think t- to illustrate that, th- that's the difference between, say, a band like Caius or Queens um, versus Fu Manchu or Monster Magnet, which, you know, for, from a format standpoint, they're those bands are more, I would, I would say at this point, now that I understand it, are stoner rock in that it's more about marijuana and the songs are still pretty, pretty conventional in terms of structure. You know, you're talking th- three to four minute songs. They're pretty much just like heavy versions of classic rock, um, yeah, like, which is fuzz yeah, over top. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I, I, maybe, maybe certain bands like Kai's like, Hami's such a genius, really. Like you talk to that guy for two hours. We interviewed him in um, his studio in Burbank, and it's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory in there. There's like all kinds of like ins- crazy instruments and devices, and you're like, man, this guy's like on some other level, like wizard type thing. And I think that comes from being in the desert and being he just does whatever, you know. So, um, you know, I think his sound was so strong, you know, that I, it just kind of for some reason rose above the other sounds for some reason but i i think also they got out of the desert right and then Grohl steps in sort of to help them and then that sound kind of emerges from the desert because i think for a while it was very interior like all the bands would play to each other for themselves so once the sound got out and they got a record deal that was just what people gravitated to i think and they're like oh this must be the desert sound or the stoner rock style right yeah, and I I I liked um, learning about uh, Mario. Is it Lolly? Yeah. In that he, he seemed to be the center of the scene, but is very un you know unrecognized or um, outside of the scene. Whereas it seems like Josh maybe mo- modeled some of himself after Mario in that concept of you know being the magnet that all these things collect to. But he was. F- I don't know, either motivated differently or had a different vision, was able to take it and actually apply it to the music and apply it really commercially. Like, if you listen to, to the Desert Session stuff, I mean, that's essentially what that scene, it's like that scene caught on in a recording studio. Um, and then he's able to take that and turn it into Queens of the Stone Age records um, and bring some of those people forward and sort of along on the journey. I picked up on a correlation there between like a mentor and, you know, somebody that's kind of taken to the, to the next level with the uh, Queens of the Stone Age. Oh, 
Most definitely. I mean, so what, how did you guys, did you guys access this through like Queens or Kai? Like, how did you, did you know about Desert Rock before? Um, I was a Caius fan back in the late nineties. I got on board later, um, with the Cirque's, uh, Leaves Town. So I've been kind of plugged in to them and then obviously to Queens from that point. But I learned a ton in this documentary. I didn't know, you know, Unsound and Yawning Man and Fatso Jetson and all that stuff. Really the punk part. I I I was completely unaware of any of that. So that was all new to me. Yeah, that actually and it makes total sense because we've done scenes like in Chicago and Boston and L.A. And even we haven't done Seattle yet because it's sort of been done to death. But all of those yeah. scenes in the 80s really start out as kind of punk scenes and evolve in different ways. Like when I was watching Sean Wheeler um, evolve from being a punk rock guy and then going and doing, I can't even pronounce the name of the band that that the Zizos, uh, whatever, that whole long. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, they're yeah. doing that with a drum machine. And they're talking about how, you know, nobody was doing a drum machine. It made me think of like Big Black in Chicago. Like, oh, you know, there were guys who got bored with the or in that case, they couldn't find a drummer because he was busy with across the river. But, uh, you know, there were guys that were like pushing the envelope in their scene in the 80s and ended up inspiring the people who were 12, 13, 14 years old, which was, you know, you know, Josh is talking about seeing Sean Wheeler and just being like completely blown away that there's no rules and, you know, he can do whatever, whatever he wants. So if he wants to use a bass cabinet to run his guitar rig to get a heavier sound, he can do that because who cares? So that was really right. the thing that it, it was both illuminating, but also unified it to so many of the different things that we've seen before, completely independent of each other, all sort of evolving in similar ways yeah that was definitely like it was an eye-opener but it was also like oh yeah this this happened like this Mm -hmm. makes sense for sure for sure yeah i mean it 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 all really it was amazing because everything sort of blossomed as we researched more and more we did like a ton of research so i think once we got rolling you know one guy led to the next guy and the next guy led to the next guy and, and and um Everything was new and fresh and just really great, really interesting. And then, you know, you meet meth cooks and stuff. You're like, I wonder if I could meet one of those guys. <laughs> you're like, oh, whatever, sure, let's let's go do that, you know? So we interviewed what we felt were – well, there was one rule. We didn't want to put – we didn't want to interview anyone that wasn't there. That was like rule number one. So everybody you see in the movie were either at the parties or in bands, et cetera, or, you know, cooked certain things for people, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, so that was very important to keep the authenticity there and for us not to interject ourselves, right? Just let the people speak for themselves and leave it at that. So uh, we, we felt like we did, a, we interviewed as many people as we could. We interviewed everyone, like, and there's people that aren't in the film that we interviewed. So yeah, really proud of like how how great everybody did on it. I mean, it wasn't just me, you know. It was so many people helping us to make that thing, including Trevor Cushing, my producing partner, and all the PAs and our amazing music supervisor Wade Hoyt, and just the amount of collaboration. And we had a Kickstarter, so all these fans came out of, you know, came out of hiding to help us, and just a really amazing process. So 
So yeah. what brought you to is is Queens the really the band that brought you to this? And in what what record, what time period did you become aware of them? I'm actually from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania originally. And um Queens would tour a little bit. But yeah, Queens was definitely the access point. And we'd all go to shows or, you know, just pump out the jams at house parties and stuff. And that was like the go-to record that like no one ever messed with. You know, it's like Queens and that first record, you could put that in, you could be like hanging out with, you know, your friends at a bar and you'd be making out with chicks, whatever. And you just throw that thing on. It's like good for all moments, you know, no one could like mess with it. It was like the Ramones Ramones record. Like no one can like front on that, you know, like, what are you going to do? Make fun of this record? Like impossible, you know? So Mm -hmm. it was like the coolest record to us for some reason. It just had so much style and, um, I think Hami speaks to it too. Like in the movie, I think he was looking for some more depth in, in what he was trying to do creatively, you know, cause the Kaya sound, you know, it ebb and flows at certain points, but I think he wanted to branch out a little bit more. So, and it's yeah. the first did coming out of Kaya's. So it's still kind of linked. It has like one foot in the door in that Kaya's world, but also, you know, one step out as well. And it's, it's just great. Yeah. I mean, I love it. So your movie puts a, I think another piece of the puzzle in place around the end of Caius, which has never been, at least from the little bit of research I've done and reading and kind of being a fan of the band at the time, it was never really fully explained what exactly happened to end that. So what was your impression talking to, to Brant and, and Josh and hearing firsthand of what exactly was the, the catalyst to, to call it a day and move on? I, th- I mean, I don't think there was any one thing. I think it was multiple factors. I think it would be easy. Again, that's the problem with these docs, you know, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too. It's like, you can't, you have to be careful about how you, you know, the, whatever I'm saying in the doc will live on for hundreds of years or whatever. So you have to kind of take that into consideration. And, but so for me, we kind of put it at the end of the film so people could understand that bands were at that point developing and trying to get out of the desert. I think that there was an impulse. Oh, it's tough, man. You know, I, I, I just, maybe one of the driving forces was like creative. I mean, each, each guy I think had a separate perspective on it. One guy thought that, that it, it's going in a commercial place that I'm not comfortable with. Another person was like, I'm cool with it getting way more commercial and I want to run with that. You know, another guy's like super OG punk and he doesn't give a damn about any of this. You know, so it's like, yeah, I think it's just competing perspectives. It was also creative differences about where people wanted to go and, and what their roles were becoming. And I think Josh, and on top of that was saying there were, there were a lot of rules from what I understand about rehearsals and, the way they dressed maybe or whatever, you know, so it's a long time. Yeah. yeah. And I think it highlights um, another theme that was, that I was getting out of the movie and just some of the other research I was doing in that there seems to be um, like this gravity about the desert and some people are, you know, compelled by it and, and want to stay too close to it. And then others want to get away from it at some point in their lives. There's kind of this struggle. It seems like I was hearing, Brand's reaction to, you know, like Metallica tour is wanting to kind of get back to the desert. And that was my sense of what he was saying and, and getting back to the, that scene and what that was about and the purity of that. Whereas maybe Josh or some other folks 
don't want to completely lose the identity, but also want to either take it to the rest of the world or just, you know, get out of it. Um, well, I'm curious, like you guys have interviewed a lot. I mean, you guys have been doing this and certainly have more information, knowledge of the whole scenes and stuff than I do. I mean, do any of those themes in the desert link up to other episodes you've done or like themes like you're like, did you watch the film? You're like, oh, yep. Yeah. Yet again. Another band that, you know, <laughs> I, I thought the story that you told was unique. I mean, completely uh, outside of any that we've heard before. And maybe it's just the geography, you know, yeah. and that's another thing about this. That's a little confusing. That takes a little while to get your head around. I mean, we're not able to you can't just say Minneapolis or Chicago or we even did Los Angeles and it stayed, you know, our roundtable in Los Angeles really stayed true to Los Angeles. Like we didn't go very much outside of the the city itself. So when you start talking about the desert, you're like, what are we actually talking about from a geography standpoint? And then, I don't know, I think what you were able to convey in the movie is that it is such an overpowering factor in the music, like what it sounds like and the instruments used, even the tones, like there's a lot of bass there because you're playing in wide open spaces where you can't hear bass. So you add a lot of bass to your music so you can hear it. Like it's just so affected the sound that I, I can't say that about Chicago or or, or any of the scenes that we've really talked about where the geography had such an enormous impact on the culture and the sound of the music. I mean, you- I remember Rollins would talk about this, like, or, you know, I even had a friend, like punk rock could never exist in the Midwest, right? Like, could you see like the Ramones, like coming out of like Iowa? It's like, n- not really. <laughs> so it had to be fast. Like punk was like this city frenetic, thing i've heard that before but yeah i i I thought of seattle a little bit only because when i was watching i don't know if you might have seen it the hype documentary that came out in the late 90s about the seattle scene went just after it kind of exploded they talked about how much isolation was involved in those bands because it was constantly raining constantly cold and they were just driven into their basements to make music by themselves or with their friends and that's what helped produce uh, i guess the amount of music that was being made because there's just nothing else to do and people were just stuck together and that was the only thing that i could connect to a different scene or, or to to the the palm desert scene was the isolation aspect because there isn't that in chicago or boston or minneapolis like you said those are very like city driven scenes even smaller ones like Cleveland. Cleveland had like the Dead Boys and Peru Ubu and, and those sort of punk bands. But a lot of those bands, you know, Dead Boys went to New York for a while. There was, you know, cross-pollination with other punk scenes. Whereas this this really is a very unique, not just in terms of its locale, but also like Jay said, in terms of its sound. Like when I saw Across the River and they started, you started showing the very initial sounds of that band like then it it started to click like oh this is where Caius starts to get some of their sound like that heavy bass tone sabbath slight sabbath influence and um and that's what to me also i i think that's why dave Grohl also connected with Caius when he heard them because a lot of those seattle bands that were into like punk and into hardcore, the reason why it turned into grunge is because they started to get influenced or or show their influence of like 70s metal 
so it was punk, but it was slower and sludgier, and that's where you get the Melvins, and that's where you get Green River and those sorts of bands. sense why those two scenes like would sort of we're not necessarily scenes but like the scenes would sort of be similar in some respect but also like there would be some mutual appreciation in terms of the the heaviness of the sound because i you know again in leading up to this was like oh the melvins are stoner rock so they're just like caius but no they're not there there's a totally there's a bigger yeah. difference going on yeah and and i think like if you think about the um the Sonic Highways um, episode on LA, they kind of merge LA and the desert scene together. And I don't, I didn't get that. That was confusing to me, but the way that it's positioned in your movie is more of um, they're complementary, I guess. And maybe they feed into each other, but they're distinct. And that's also probably what makes some of these bands unique is that, you know, that you can, get in the car and drive to LA in a reasonable amount of time or even, you know, gig there or move there for a while and move back. Whereas the Northwest, I think that was a, a lot more difficult. You know, you hear bands like traveling down to San Francisco to, to play shows, but that's, uh, that's a pretty long haul. Um, so I, I thought, I thought that was interesting. I understood, I think through this movie that how the two scenes kind of feed into each other and complement each other, but are distinct. Yeah, it depended on like what each band wanted to do. I mean, that was what was interesting too, is we would talk to these different bands, like Gary Arce in Yawning Man, like has such a, 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 a such a great vision of what he wants out of his band and where he wants to go. And, um, you know, each band has different ambitions, right? So, and has different versions of like what success is. You know, which we didn't really talk about in the film, but I think that plays a lot into the Kai's thing. And you know, it's so crazy because like bands, you know, it's so tough. But not everybody's success is, is uh, sort of defined by like, well, we got to go to L.A. and make a record, man. You know, it's like, does that? I don't know. You know, it's a big question, and I think bands still face to this day. You know, so. So you didn't you didn't talk uh, the movie doesn't talk very much about Rancho de la Luna, which is a big part of the Sonic Highways documentary. I was told by Tommy to stay away from that, so I did not to proceed. Okay, was uh, not in a negative way. He's just like, don't worry about it. it. Has nothing to do with what we were talking about. We had like a two hour conversation about you know everything that basically wasn't Rancho, and Rancho is its own story, right? So that that was kind of a later thing, I guess, to wrap that up, but. Hmm. I think I don't know that much about when it started. I forget the dates. Sonic Highways, I think that's what was great about that episode, which we actually worked on. We gave them a lot of archival. Um, they, well, I think yeah, that's what's confusing, though, is that 
I watched that and I was like, oh, okay, well, this is where all those bands recorded. So this is a really important part of the story. But then I felt like yours was digging deeper into the story and it wasn't in it at all. So now I'm, I'm confused on, was it a factor in, in the nineties or when did it become a factor? Like, what is the connection there? Um, the connection certainly is obviously the location one and then the, 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 the people, um, uh, that, that ran the studio, the guy that I believe that opened the studio, I, I can't really speak to this that much cause I don't know about the research, but other than it being sort of a location point, I think it, it, it starts to play a larger role now in, in, in contemporary modern music making when bands will come there. And I think that's the really great part of, of that place that, that, I guess it was all one way to get out of the desert, but that was a great way to bring people in. But I guess just for bands, um, that, that was an interesting thing about Rancho that they were like drawing people in. And then, um, yeah, I've never been there, never been there, but, uh, maybe one day we could, we could head out there. Well, I think that highlights the one, uh, another thing that was surprising for me was that there aren't the landmarks that exist are not buildings there's spots <laughs> in the desert you know the, the places that you go visit is not a piece of architecture it's maybe a former piece of architecture or nothing it's just open space so i guess that makes sense you know now that you know going forward they've established at least a building that if you want to go record in the desert you can go to that makes sense. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, that was the other part, like we glossed over at the end, Mario Lolly, you know, eventually opens up at an amazing nightclub called rhythm and Brews in the nineties. And a lot of bands like Fu Manchu and Caius would tour there. Queens it was, long, it was around for a long time. Uh, uh, it just closed up, it suffered an unfortunate series of setbacks. Uh, and they had liquor license issues, right? Uh, yeah. The story I heard, was unfortunately you know they had a liquor license and i think some kids i i can't i'm not 100 percent sure on it to speak to actually but um whatever happened there it was shut down i think by law enforcement or whatever and they had yep. like a lot of fines and yeah so it's unfortunate but so in in doing some research on this i stumbled upon uh, Scott Reader's YouTube page. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware about this, but he posted back in 2014 a demo of Across the River. Uh, it's a demo tape from 1985, which includes an early version of a Caius song called N.O. Yes. So do you know the story behind that? I mean, it would just kind of randomly went up. Um, I don't know. Has anything ever come out, like actual recordings or is this pretty much it? You know, Scott um, Scott was really, really great for us. Yeah, I mean, that backtrack, he saves a lot of stuff. A lot of the archival that you see in the film came from, from him. And he was so generous with, you know, providing us with ticket stubs and uh, flyers and also across the river stuff. And I had reached out to him like, hey, you know, doing this doc and I saw the across the river demo. I'd love to talk to you about that etc and uh we got to talking about that and then yeah the name of the song is is no which which stands for new one and that was what was really cool about caius is they kind of tip their hats to across the river by covering that song so i'm not quite sure what the specific history of the song is but 
um, yeah, it's a really rad way to like tip the cap, right. To the, to the, to the, the legends, you know? Right. So yeah. And I know as far as what's coming out soon, SST, that was like the big thing at that point, which we didn't cover in the movie because it'd, be, it'd just been too, that, that SST is such a rabbit hole once you go into their history. But, um, across the river actually did this live recording and it's incredible. No one's ever heard it. I heard it, but in, in Scott's, um, studio, but SST wanted to put out a live record called live at the County line was the name of the record, the, the, the tentative title. And it had a bunch of different bands, including across the river and they recorded it like to like quarter inch tape or whatever. <laughs> it's like incredible, but SST owns the masters to that. So there's some complications with licensing to get those recordings out at the present time. But uh, Mario and Scott, I, I believe, last time I spoke with them, are working to get that get that out because there's definitely a lot of interest in that in that band. So hopefully they get it out because it sounds yeah. incredible. It's it's really incredible. I mean, those guys at that point were just cooking with with their with their skills, like Alfredo on drums and Mario shredding. Mark Anderson got to this crazy technical level, and Scott, I mean, just crushes it i mean just so talented he's a he's a musical genius he plays drums bass tar studio wizard i mean yeah i'm getting excited just thinking about it <laughs> somebody that um that isn't in the movie but comes up when you talk about the scene and i understand now i understand the, the sort of the the requirements you put around the movie of wanting to talk people directly in there, why he's not in is Chris Goss from Masters of Reality. Been a producer for a lot of these bands. He's been involved with Queens and the Desert Sessions. When I listen to their music and the way he sings, I can't help but think that Josh models his singing, particularly now as he sings more and more, is more comfortable singing after Chris. Is that a band that came up? And if so, was there any just general sense around what impact they had on on some of these bands masters of reality yeah oh absolutely yeah i mean josh and chris and of course i'm speaking about their relationship like i was there which i wasn't but from what i understand in the archival interviews um and things he talked about i mean their relationship only grew uh stronger and stronger as the years went by as as far as it being a specific influence to caius is that what you mean or well uh, and into any of these bands it's particularly queens of the stone age I, I hear a lot of similarities in some of the more commercial stuff that Queens does and what Master of Reality did. Well, the one thing I, I could speak to was, you know, Chris Goss was responsible for naming Queens of the Stone Age. That actually happened. So they were um, recording uh, the first album. And I think uh, Josh or somebody was in the booth and they were taking a long time. And Chris Goss says from the engineer board, you know, what's the matter with you guys? You're going so slow. You're like Queens of the Stone Age, which is a sort of, I guess, slur for a, uh, a old homosexual man, like a queen, like an older queen. So a uh, queen of the stone age uh, derives from that uh, particular moment in their recording history. Uh, so there's a connection there, uh, mm -hmm. but and I'm, I'm sure they were huge, huge influences as, as Josh is a, cine, or a cinephile, a uh, audiophile for sure. Dress on. 
Was it? How did you get your interviews with um with Dave and Josh and some of the the guys that are actually you know a little bit more well known? Yeah, I just kept knocking on the door until they let me in. You know, that was that was it. I um, uh, what, what, you know, what yeah. part of your pitch do you think it got them to make time? I said, you guys better give me an interviewer. Else. <laughs> uh, uh, it, uh, it was, you know, at that point, it was actually good timing because we interviewed them late. Like we were like eight months into filming and we never, we don't pay for interviews. We just ask people if they want to be in it, you know, and we got the contact through Mario. Um, Cause he asked us, we did a pickup interview with him. We did several interviews with Mario and Mario's like, Hey, have you talked to Josh at all or anything like that? I'm like, Nope. And <laughs> that was later on. He's like, Oh, I'll put you in touch. And, uh, that's, that's kind of how that went down. Um, and of course we worked on Sonic highways, uh, giving a lot of archival to them. At that point we had accumulated so much stuff that their production company reached out to us through, uh, a friend of the production. Um, and I said, Hey, if you guys have time, we'd love to talk to Dave about everything that isn't Nirvana, which I'm sure he was thrilled about. You know, it's like, <laughs> can you imagine how many times he gets asked the same question? I mean, it must be like mind boggling. Uh, so, so I think, you know, that, that interview was also very unique in that, like how many times do we intimately ask somebody about Caius or like, you know, I don't think he really, I think that it was, a, that was a great interview because we were talking about things that. I don't think he had a chance to, 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 to speak with before, um, about, so it was all just like word of mouth. And at that point we had done so much work that, I mean, the, when we were talking to Josh, it was really back and forth. I knew everything. I knew everything about that scene. Um, it's kind of scary actually. I mean, I'm sure he was like, wow, how does this guy know this and that? And we just, we worked really hard on that talk. So. We kind of, I like to say we kind of earned those interviews, you know, and it was an honor to, to interview them for sure. What's the time frame in terms of you get the initial idea to you start, you know, I guess sketching out or, or what have you, how, however you put this together. What is the actual length of time it takes to put this together, conduct all the interviews uh, and then actually release the film? I'm curious about what your investment uh, is. Yeah, back to front was probably three years, three to four years, because we had the pre-production time where I would just go out to Palm Springs by myself. I went to the library a lot, and I would go through the Desert Sun newspaper archives from that. So from that day to like premiering in Palm Springs and the festival stuff, I mean, it's about four years back to back. So and probably one of the most amazing times in all of our lives to be able to kind of explore that. So it's a lot of work and we're a small team. It's just, it was basically me and Trevor and I edited the film and had a lot of help with that. And yeah. So one of the things that because of the time frame and, and what you're covering that isn't covered that I've been curious about is it seems like, and I don't, maybe you can shed some light on this, that there's some, animosity between the guys in Caius in terms of I think it was Garcia and Brant Bjork getting together to do Caius Lives mm. and um and then Josh and Scott filing a lawsuit I think to stop them mm -hmm. from doing anything with that I think they toured 
But when they were like, hey, we're going to make some new music, Josh and Scott were like, oh, no. No, you're not. I noticed that... So was John someone that you interviewed or were you not able to interview him? I'm just curious about if that played a role in any of this or where that all fell. Yes. John Garcia. Yeah. Uh, I... uh... (laughs) We reached out to him. Like I said, we reached out to everybody. And uh, I mean, it's it's such a privilege, right? Like nobody needs to be in our doc. I mean, if people said no, right. it's fine. It's like, it's just, we weren't angry or anything like that. But we reached out and I don't think he does a lot of interviews. And if he does, they're under different circumstances. So um, not sure really what happened there. It was kind of like a one-way thing. We didn't really hear back from him. So that's that's sort of that end of that. But I think that's why we sort of shaped the edit. In that way, we're like, can you imagine every band member having like a, in that movie, like every band like had so many rotating members and like who speaks for what era and it, it, it could get mind numbing. So that was right. I think Brent and Josh could speak for everybody. I think, you know, I mean, you had both sides of it. I think the way, what Brent's perspective was, what Josh's perspective was and that's okay, you know. Um, and I think, as as far as the later stuff goes, I mean, who knows? I can't really speak to it because I don't. I wasn't there. I don't. I don't really know what it really involved. You know. Gotcha. I wish I could, but just not something I knew. But we try to keep the. You know, we. I I think we also side note to that. Like people wanted that information and or or like to be. Like, oh, get into the negative. Not that you guys are doing that, but that there is this like, tell me about the Caius breakup, you know? And it's like, yeah, we talk about that. But I think the unfortunate thing is that tends to overshadow all the other amazing things that were happening there. And I think we just try to tone that down a little bit by making each section its own sort of equal weight. So it didn't feel like this is a Caius doc, right? It's it's not a Caius doc. It's a scene doc. It's about all the different bands on equal footing. And there's just, there's times when people are super low. There's times when people are super high in more ways than one. And, uh, you know, so, so, and that was really important to us because, you know, these are people you're sitting down with for two hours and they're telling you about their lives, you know, and you sort of have to be respectful of that. And I think, it's our responsibility as filmmakers, as journalists, I'm sure you guys know as well, to, to, to be mindful of that when you're interviewing people um, because they're trusting you. It's like this pact that they're making with you about what you're going to do. And I think we were only able to talk to so many people and, and talk to Josh and talk to Nick because we had that attitude about it. Like, you know, being respectful of people's lives, especially when it came to substance abuse and you know, not being super exploitative, I think was very important because I think it's a lot, I think it's a lot easier to be negative and be like, to make like a negative type of like, let's get dramatic with this when it doesn't need to be, why not just be positive and like, you know, celebrate the scene rather than, than talk about how it all like got set on fire, which it didn't, you know, but it could have gone in that direction. I could have shaped it that way. So Yeah, I mean, it's clear in the movie, you know, the way it's presented in the overall story that, you know, drugs were a big part of the story. But I do think that 
it was refreshing that it doesn't take the typical rock star or, you know, drug story angle. I mean, it's a different narrative there of why it, how it impacted the sound more so to me than anything, whether it be, you know, cultural or sonically, literally or whatever. Um, and, and I think it does like we've heard that story, right? That's not interesting, <laughs> right? So I, I did appreciate that, that, you know, it, it told a new story about how the drug, the, the role that drugs play in music. That's not the typical behind the music VH1 thing. I mean, people can be like, I know people that can be in bands and drug addicts and they're fine. You know, they don't like crash and burn, you know, and that's like a surprising thing to hear, but <laughs> there is such a thing as a functional drug addict. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you don't talk about that either. So a lot of those dudes kind of lived through it and that was that. <laughs> I mean, it definitely came through stronger, I think, in the Scott Wheeler footage. Like he's obviously, that's a topic yeah. that whether you wanted him to or not, he wants to talk about uh, quite a bit in terms of how it stitches the story together. So there's individuals where it came through stronger than others. Um, what, what, th- that leads me to a, a question on maybe him or, or, any other bands that are artists that you came across maybe you weren't aware of that you discovered and just thought, wow, like these, this, this person or this band should have been bigger. I'm shocked that it didn't, you know, sort of make it, um, at least a little bit more in terms of overall, you know, consciousness, neither nationally or globally. Are there any that really stand out to you that you came across in your research? Personally, I wish Zizo ZZ Zadfract was like the biggest thing on the planet. I think that that was so amazing to me that I, I can't even believe we found that footage and it was just Sean. I, I'm assuming he was under some sort of snake dance wizard chemical magic at that point. But, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, I really love that band. I love the idea behind that band. But I think the one everybody points to is Across the River because that seemed like they were just shredding so hard that I think people from a popular perspective, populist, I don't know, what's the word? That they, 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 that was like the band that people I think thought were going to like break out in some way. But yeah, other than that, I just, I fell in love with Sean's early stuff as we were making it. I thought it was like a really wild, that, that to me, like, cause they're like playing in biker bars, like hell's angels type stuff, you know, like, for for drugs you know like they're not getting paid money they're getting paid to like be the entertainment in like the cookhouse which is like super weird i'm like wait what like i ne- i mean what scene is like that i don't even you know that people playing ping pong terrifying hours <laughs> i mean it's like real true detective type stuff you yeah know? like wow like this is like really intense. all right you, you just hit it i have to tie this together so And I think you you were talking about this doing your research. So as I start to like watch the movie and pull this apart, uh, I start like actually creating one of those um, true detective style, like (laughs) research boards with all the lines connecting. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And for some reason it just seemed right. Like I started like just throwing my thoughts together. I'm like, I started doing it. I started thinking of true detective and like, (laughs) There was like a creepy overtone that I was like, this just seems like it goes together. I even sent it to, to Tim yesterday. Like, this is where my head is going after spending, you know, a couple of weeks in this scene and watching the movie. And like, I'm trying to put all these pieces and parts together. And it's just like this intermingling web that's just fascinating. 
Yeah, it's like it goes nowhere. I think Brant like that's like the true detective thing. It's like there's yeah. no real there's there is no box, right? Like there is no spoon. You know? <laughs> You're like, "Oh, I get it." You know, and it even took me a while after the edit cuz I'm like what is desert rock? What is the sound? You know, and you're like, it was like some kung fu wizard being like, there is no sound. You know, right? Like, <laughs> you know? I'm like this. This this whole scene has turned me into a rusty coal. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm losing I, my like, mind. Carrying a blank wall, right? You're like, what? And I had that. I had like a huge whiteboard of like, where? Yeah. How do I even do this? But um, <laughs> yeah, like, because there's so many like lone wolves you know, like doing their own thing. And yeah, it's just super rad, you know, and it, um, it was hard. So using, I, I think one of the easier things that we did was use Mario and Sean as, as these anchor points. So we had Mario as this like scene, scene builder and Sean is this like wild man. You know, I think it shows both, both sides very well, you know? What about labels? That's something we've talked about in almost every other scene that, um, you know, through my my web board here, I, I've come across Man's Ruin as being one and Southern Lord as being another, but they're not real. Uh, there's no real central label that I could find that you could point to and say, OK, these are the these are the people, at least with a little bit of industry knowledge that was supporting this and putting the music out. Is there a label that, we're, that I'm missing that was? No, there, this? there was there was no label. No, hmm. there was. And, and I, I know Mark Anderson, who was the uh, guitar player in Across the River. Um, spoke to that in the interview, but it's not in the film. He's like, I think if there was a label, maybe something, but that, you know, it's like a, what if, you know, I, I don't, you know, what if the label sucked or who was running it? I mean, you know, I don't know. I think it would have changed a lot, but I, I'm not even sure in what way, but there was no label at the time though, for sure. You mentioned a couple of times about stuff not being in the film. What is the, I guess, is that stuff that, you would put out on like a DVD with like bonus content in terms of like extra footage or is that like strictly not for the public and only for informational aspects of building the film? Um, what, like what are your feelings on that stuff? Like stuff that maybe it's a little drier, so it doesn't necessarily need to go in, but might be of interest to folks. Yeah. So we have uh, the DVD that's for sale now. Um, is the director's cut. And that has 20 minutes, I think, of additional content. And that's in the film, like cut into the film. And then we have some extras there where, you know, people kind of elaborate on their philosophies. Like one one of them is like Josh talking about making it in the music industry, let's say, or Dave talking about this one time, whatever. So um, no, it wasn't explicitly to keep things out or you know, protect anyone or anything like that. But in the director's cut, there's a, there's a great, it was the one section I really wanted to put in, but it didn't, I don't know, it just didn't fit. And it's a uh, black flag coming to rumors, this very small club in Palm Springs. And that actually was a big catalyst when people started, because we don't talk a lot about influences in the, in the, in the yep. film. Right. So, yep. Uh, and that's, that's, we do that on purpose. Um, so, but, but that was the one band that was like rolling through there that, uh, kind of inspired people to kind of like make a move, you know? So, um, because black flag at the time, I think was, was one of the bands that was sort of going into suburban areas and touring in unconventional spaces and was really going for it. But, and it, it was just a very long story that I think kind of started to sidetrack our narrative a little bit. So, um, but still a great, great 
So talk a little bit more about the influences decision. So uh, yeah, you, you don't get into really, I don't think you mentioned any bands that were not immediately part of the scene of the sort of eight, early 80, mid 80s through the 90s. Um, why, why is that? Why didn't you? I think I just, things? I just wanted to the perspective of the film to feel like you were in the desert and isolated and you had no connection to anything, you know, just bands were kind of being radical. It was a way to reinforce this idea that bands were just kind of doing their own thing without sort of super direct influence, you know, because mm -hmm. young band doesn't sound like anything, you know. I mean, they had influences, but you know, what do you say? Like Gary RC like likes Black Flag, which he does. Like everybody likes Black Flag, right? You know, so yeah. it's, it's obvious, but in the same way, it's like, well, what, what's unique about this? Well, what's unique about it is Mario saying, we got to be different. And to be different, let's just get weird, you know, and like talk about that, you know? So, and like, I just hate the, I just, uh, like docs, you know, every doc has Henry Rollins in it talking about whatever. And you're like, all right, already with this, you know? <laughs> you know right. Like, yeah. Ramones. It's like, yeah, everybody liked the remote, you know, it's like, the the influences were there. The only one was like Black Flag that I think everybody really gravitated towards. But I think that that's sort of covered in the sense that when you talk about very early on the skate shop where people would sort of gravitate towards and they would yeah. just be sort of listening to whatever was being played in the skate shop on cassettes or what have you sort of like acting as a cultural hub for these kids that just had nothing going on. And so their influence was just sort of this whatever was going on there. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it might not have even, you know, some of those kids might not even known what the band was they were just hearing this punk rock music in the right. early to mid 80s and absorbing that and then reinterpreting it right I mean, and the one thing they were listening to was a lot of rodney on the rock that was like a huge thing so they were like listening to that over the radio so rodney would play what well, rodney was a big influence which is in the film to them getting access to that music and you know it, it, it to me it, yeah it feels very much that way like it's just a it's all kind of lumped in together in a way and it's like yep punk rock hardcore great move on you know <laughs> i don't know I, I don't know maybe somebody would have taken it in a different direction and but i just wanted to keep well, it focused on the bands and stuff and, so are you are you familiar with the movie low sound desert i am yes so that's i think does take that very predictable path with the story and there's some overlap obviously as you, as you know in terms of some of the stories that are told within it but it does I, that's what I, I think i found fascinating is just that uh, it tells the generic like st let's start with everybody let's hear about the record collection they had um you know let's go dig deep on yes they all listen to sabbath and etc 
but that doesn't tell you I, I think what what your movie does it tells you specifically what's unique about this scene so even if you're going to talk about influences it's let's talk about the influences that were created in the scene and then propelled the scene forward and kind of held it together as opposed to and if it's external it's what's unique about the external part right it's the okay there was a radio station you could get from from los angeles you know that gave you a little bit of a glimpse into the the rest of the world but other than that you're completely isolated in creating your own sound which is right you know we way more true yeah, yeah. Like we just want to make sure it was also the film was accessible, like my mom could watch it, you know, and understand what was going on. So we didn't really want to trail off into these things that were like too sceny, like that it would just get too intense. Which is maybe why the Black Flag section isn't in there. Because if you don't understand Black Flag, and you got to start talking about that, and then what that means, and, and now you're off on this other path. So. We just tried to keep it like, again, you kept saying the word scene and that's what it was. Like, what is a scene? Well, the scene is the places, it's the people, it's the music, it's the meth cook, it's the, you know, whatever. So it's like, it's a bunch of stuff, you know, and that collectively, I think, informed the music and the people and the places and their attitudes and how they are and that whole thing, you know. Well, let me ask you, um, we've we've talked to guests recently and we've talked about how you know, music as a scene idea has changed with the advent of the internet and sort of breaking down the limitations of physical location where you can just post music anywhere, you know, you can record it on your computer and then post it to Spotify or, you know, SoundCloud or whatever. In visiting there recently, is there still a quote unquote scene? In- oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a bunch of cool, there's a bunch of like a really cool bands. Like our trailer uses um, music from this really rad band called um, uh, Slipping Into Darkness, which is really cool. Um, there's also a really great band called Fever Dog, which is a bunch of like kids just getting radical out there. And it's, uh, yeah, it's still alive and well. They're, they've got a, uh, they've got a, uh, they used to have shows. A lot of the footage in the, in the film was taken at a place called Schmitty's. <laughs> it's like this pub like there's still nowhere to play in the desert like of course the name of the place is called schmitty's you know you're like what, <laughs> like, what is this like irish pub bar in the middle of palm desert that's like hosting these like wild bands you're like what so and which has closed schmitty's done you know like that's done so um it's just really hard to play in places so there's a place called the hood now and the hood hosts a lot of different touring bands. Like I saw Fu Manchu there with, um, I think Sean Wheeler played as well, but I'm not quite sure about that. So yeah, just really hard scene is alive, but still tough to find places to play. That's the problem. So, uh, Tim and I were discussing prior to this, what episode we were actually doing. So as we're kind of moving through this, I'm curious on in your guys' thoughts. We, we have two formats that we typically do with round tables. We either do uh, the scene in the nineties or the genre in the nineties. So are we talking about the desert rock scene or the palm desert scene or are we talking about desert rock, stoner rock in the 90s? I, I would be inclined to say the scene, like the desert scene, yep. kind of more tied to the, the, the geography. And yeah, I think if we tell like, the, the other story, we're going to have to go much broader, right? Because you're going to go outside of this location into like this uh, Georgia and Florida and other right. places where stoner rock starts to emerge. 
Right. And, and, you know, like that rad place, like the nude bowl, I mean, they're playing during skate, you know, when people are skating and stuff. So it's like, there's so many factors that contribute to everything. Like the energy of that, like, I don't know if you've ever been to like a skate bowl where there's like a band, but it's like a whole thing. It's like a, such a whole energy to it. And that informs the music and all kinds of things, you know, that, that section was pretty interesting to me. That nudist colony that had that pool, yeah, and, radical. Oh, well, that's sweet. It also sort of illustrated how like brutal the desert can be. Because I was thinking, like they said, well, there was this nudist colony in up until the seventies, and then when you looked at it in terms of the nineteen, I guess early nineties or late eighties, it had just been completely like crumbled. Yeah. And it was like I was thinking, like, well, if that was in, you know, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, the buildings would still be there. They would just be like boarded up. But they like it seemed like because of the brutality of like the desert and like it just ev- like evaporated that whole thing yeah. there. Looked like a bomb went off. Yeah, it looked like a bomb <laughs> went exactly. Yeah, and that's uh, that was that was I think drove home the point maybe not explicitly but just in the visual of like yeah this is a pretty like st- not stark existence but like it definitely tests people if yeah. they can handle. Like it said, like, and it's mentioned in the doc, like, so people can't handle it and you have to have like yeah. sort of a certain, certain mindset. It tests your metal for sure. I mean, there's like, um, you know, those parties, you're walking to those parties, right? Like in the darkness and you're like half wasted or whatever, you know, and you're like, what, it's such a time zone and, you know, and then you get to this like lost boys type, you know. <laughs> king of the jungle anarchist type situation and you're like man this is some wild some wild stuff so it's interesting but uh definitely comes down to them just not where do the kids go where are they supposed to go it's like a rat pack town you know i mean where are you supposed to get wild when you're 22 (laughs) you can't go to the flamingo casino you know you gotta go you you gotta go out in the middle of the desert so. I, I definitely identified with Mario sort of like freaking out about stuff and being the the somewhat responsible one of like <laughs> either even when he was like playing in the early band when he was like all these guys are doing drugs and it was like freaking me out and then like at the show where they needed to get the somebody got hit over the head with a tire iron yeah. and he was like does somebody have a, an, a car we can get him to the, to the hospital I was like yeah that would that would have been me like I would have been the one like panicking and like more concerned about or, or kind of uh you know taking the the more I guess adult approach I don't think I could have just hung back and been like oh, whatever whatever's happening just be cool with that I don't think I would have been comfortable yeah. I mean that whole scene that's that's that scene was that party was so critical to like telling the story because it's just you know people just park you take it for granted you go to like a concert or wherever and there's like a parking lot you know (laughs) there's no no parking lots out there so like everyone's just jammed in and people are just you know whatever like just getting wild out there i mean there's no rules it's it just caved on itself sometimes you know over its own anarchistic whatever um vibe theme you know so um, I can't believe we found that footage, too. I mean, just digging through to find that one moment, you know, we're really, really lucky to, to uh, have the footage to back that up for sure. Yeah. Is that something that Scott had? Where did you find stuff like that? It was so rad. That was like the coolest part of making the doc. Like, you know, 
you that that footage came from a guy named Mike Desert who lives. Of course, his name is Mike Desert. Uh, <laughs> okay, Mike Desert uh, was is his brother name? John Desert. You're right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. His name. Yeah. Sunny Desert or something. Right. Uh, he uh, he lives in San Francisco and he has an, a really rad band called Horns. And uh, he was the dude filming all that. Like he had, he was like the one guy with the. Actually, there's two dudes: Shane Untertheiner, amazing name, um, and um, Mike Desert. Huge and shout out to them as well for helping us with that. So, and, and I would be like, dude, just give me everything. He's like, you want all this footage? I'm like, yes. And I would just dig through to find like the most interesting thing. And uh, a lot of nudity, a lot of nudity in those videos. So. We tried. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people like getting naked in front of cameras. That's like kind of a thing that, you know, I don't know. There's something about the camera, you know, lights, camera, nudity, you know. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we this would be a good spot for us. Jay, unless you have anything else for us to, uh, to wrap up. We just hit the uh, hour mark. Yeah, quick minutia question. So sure. it looks like the movie has two movie posters. There's uh-huh. one I'm seeing that's like a psychedelic illustration style, and then there's another. It's a photo. What's the story behind each of those? Uh, and and... Uh, so, so dovetailing off the archival video, um, Sophia Poseidon was actually one of the scene photographers there, unofficial scene photographer. She would submit photos of what was going on. Again, pre-internet, right? Um, submitting photos to um, Flipside magazine to just say what was going on, like little brief little blurbs. So she was taking a lot of photos and sending it to the magazine. And so she took the photo uh, that's on um, the DVD cover. And uh, actually inside, there's there's two other amazing photos that she took. So it's sort of a, a nod to her radical photography. And then the other was an early poster that we designed. Uh, Joe Mruck uh, is a poster designer in um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There's a lot of the posters hand-drawn posters for the bands there. I asked him to do something and it took forever to figure out what we were going to do. So we just added everything into that poster. So, uh, yeah, it's real radical, real radical stuff. Very cool. All right. Let's talk about where people can go to see the film. Uh, it's obviously you can go to desertagefilm.com is the, uh, the website for that. And then, um, I watched it myself. It's on Amazon prime. And then, Jay, how did you watch it? Amazon Prime. Okay. Uh, where are some other places that folks can go? I think iTunes, they can go to download. Vimeo is uh, where you can view it. iTunes, Vimeo, Google Play, and Xbox. So in between playing like Battlefront or whatever, you can go and watch Desert Age. Um, <laughs> take a break. You know, it's our uh, anniversary this month of the, of the first shoot that we did with Scott Reader. He was our very first interview and that was february of 2013 so this month is like the two-year anniversary um so in honor of that we have a cool if you go to the website website we have um uh, a bundle of stuff for sale it's like our anniversary pack for sale as the dvd and cool koozie shirt and poster that we were just talking about and you can use promo code green machine which will give you 15 percent off anything in the store so excellent yeah just hit the shop button and you're there so uh thanks for joining us from all the way across the uh, planet on this uh <laughs> on this sunday morning you My wouldn't pleasure. know it yeah. it sounds perfect 
Yeah, I'm just I'm just stoked that thank you again for watching it and having me on. I, I always love talking about the scene and good luck on the show. I mean, you guys do such a fantastic job. I was just honored to be a part of this. So thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks. And, uh, you know, we love talking to people that share our passion for uh, various uh, music genres that uh, we need to get the word out about. So really psyched that uh, we get to share this movie with our fans and, and hopefully with um you know, maybe some new people that haven't uh, had a chance to to dig into the scene the way that the documentary does. So it was very cool to um, now we just got to figure out too which uh, whether we did a, a scene dissection or a genre dissection. I still have to debate that when I figure out <laughs> when I write the description <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> right on, dudes. Yeah, thanks again. All right, thanks, Jason. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our facebook twitter and instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com 